somebody was excited. Thank you, Nick. All right, so uh, there is no junior church. If you um, are new here, then we have kids' bulletins in the back, crayons and all that. And if you fill that out, kids, uh, you get a piece of candy afterwards if you fill out all the forms or the blanks for the sermon. Along that, yeah, there's some up front and there's some in the back. So while your kids are doing that, I have a question. How many of you have had nicknames while growing up? Or still have nicknames. So uh, I, I know there's a few of us that have nicknames. Um, Dustin has a nickname of Dusty. But that's kind of an odd one. Craig, our intern, has an intern. His, his, I think everybody should call him his nickname of Craigie. Okay? He loves it. Please call him that. So I've had several nicknames growing up. Um, my real name is Donald, but I go by Don or Donnie. Those are nicknames. I've gone by DG, Donnie Jean or Donnie Goff. Um, for a while, people were calling me Donnie Dorco, which was kind of fitting. I went by Mo for a couple summers in one friend's group. Donald Duck. Yeah. And then for this one, you'll have to ask my parents. But um, while I was in baseball, my nickname was Pterodactyl. You'll have to ask my parents, but it's a good one, I think. And then in high school, I was also known as Brillo Head. And if you know what a Brillo Pad is, you'll know what my hairstyle looked like. Lately, I've been called Beardy, and then just this morning, I've been called Long-Winded by Nick. By far, most of all, the nickname I've been called the most is Dork. Um, while in junior high, our youth group went through a passage, and in our, cr- our group, they looked at me and said, well, as we were reading the scripture in, in um, Acts, they said, Dorcas, that's your future wife, Dottie, because of that. Dork. Now, how many of you, when you hear the word dork, you think of good? I do. Okay. Just so you know, if you are called a dork, that means you are a disciple of Risen King. You like that? I got called so much that I changed it to be something good, and I have a t-shirt with that on it. Dork. People have assumed that this lady Dorcas is just a funny, weird name, and they've made fun of her for it. As we continue through our book of Acts today, we're going to meet Dorcas. But hopefully after this message, you're going to see that her name is a great compliment to her character to her faith, and something that we should live up to be like. If you're anything like Dorcas of the Bible, then you are someone I want in our church, and someone I want to be like. First of all, here's what the name Dorcas means. The name Dorcas means gazelle. That's what the name Dorcas means. Why would she be called gazelle? Was she graceful? Did she have soft brown hair? I I don't know, but that's what the name means. And before we talk more about Dorcas, I want to consider several of the earthly, or the early church heroes that Luke has introduced so far. And as we say the name, we're going to kind of talk about each one. These were unlikely heroes of the early church. First was Peter, and the beginning of Acts and the Pentecost, that huge Jewish festival. So many Jews made the annual spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. And God enabled Peter and the rest to preach, and 3,000 people were saved. He was an amazing miracle worker. If you remember the account of the crippled man, 
who was asking for money at the temple gates, he was miraculously healed. He was so excited, he started jumping and leaping around, causing problems. And Peter and John were in jail for that. Um, but it was an amazing, unlikely hero. The second one, John. John is Peter's ministry partner and talk about nicknames. He and his brothers had a great nickname. They were known as the Sons of Thunder. Wouldn't that be a great nickname to be one of the boys of thunder? Uh, because they had all kind of great zeal and um, excitement for the cause of Christ. One day they, they were turned down, kicked out of a Samaritan town, and they wanted to call down hellfire from heaven to destroy. That's how excited they wanted thunder to come down and destroy that. John went on to partner in the ministry with Peter and to write some of the, the new books, New Testament books. Um, one thing I love about John is he is still in ministry, even into old age, ancient. By some people, he, he was still constantly doing it. Here's another unlikely hero, Luke, that he's going to introduce us to. We're not there yet, but we're going to learn about it, and that's Paul. His name is first Saul, and I sometimes wish I had an exciting story of how I came to Christ like Saul did. And how it's just amazing. Paul has a great conversion story. He's ravaging the church, pursuing them, locking them up, and even killing them. And he goes from being the single greatest opponent to Jesus, of Jesus, to the single greatest proponent. He went from hating to promoting him. Um, and he wrote one-third of the New Testament. So we have Peter, we have John, Paul, and John, Paul, and Ringo, and, no, that's wrong, sorry, I meant Stephen. Some of you don't get that. Let me just tell you, I didn't really get it either. I'm telling you how old you are. It's part of the Beatles, just so you know. Okay, Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was very simple. Um, man, he was tasked in the ministry to go help serve food for the those who were needing it. Um, he was qualified to be one of the first deacons. He preached the very first long word-for-word -word sermon in Acts. Um, he was getting too popular, and so they put him to death. And Paul was actually one of them. man of great wisdom stood up in the Sanhedrin, and that was Stephen. Last week, we looked at Philip. Philip was another one of the seven men who had been picked to deliver food for the widows, to help serve them, and God had gifted him. He became a great preacher and evangelist. He went to the region of Samaria and started a whole revival of people there. And then he was taken out and sent on the desert road where he met the eunuch and helped bring him into Christ, and then he went somewhere else. This is a, a list of heroes. Um that I just think is really important to understand that where we're at in this. But then here's one more hero. This is an unlikely hero of the Bible. Okay, we're going to look at the last one, number five here, Dorcas. And Dorcas is an unlikely hero in, or number six, sorry, in, in Scripture. Who is Dorcas, and why did Luke feel compelled by the Spirit to include her in this? Especially in a time when you don't elevate women, is what it was seen. And yet, Luke does this. Philip was one who um, just considered preach the gospel. He healed people, baptized people. One of the churches he started was in a little town of Joppa. 
And within that church, among the small band of believers, was this woman named Dorcas. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there, starting in verse 32. Peter, remember, he went and saw that the Samaritans were really believers. He passed on the Spirit to them, and he went around preaching and teaching on his way back to Jerusalem. Verse 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter is on the move here, okay? Because of the believers, they were scattered. That's the sermon series we're in. Because of scattered, Peter is out teaching and preaching. He's going to all these various places, visiting churches and, and teaching them. And at the same time, he's in Lydia, which is very close to Joppa, 10 miles away. And in this town, there's a man who's been paralyzed, who's been bedridden or something for eight years. When I had surgery, which was three years ago, I was in, in bed for like three weeks straight. And that, that made me go nuts. I, I just couldn't stand doing that. Imagine eight years of that. First thing we need to understand, uh, first Peter prayed, he healed, and then the whole town. Look what here. Aeneas did not keep to himself. He did not hide. He went out and told people. Now, how do we know this, okay? He went out and told people. These, these verses say that the whole population of Lydia and Sharon saw him. So he didn't get healed and went home and hid. He was healed and he went out. Does it ever say in these verses that he went talking? It doesn't say that. But we have to connect a couple dots here. Verse 35. All the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. The people saw Aeneas, but why did they turn to the Lord? How did they know to turn to the Lord? Why didn't they just say, wow, that's cool, he's up and moving? What was it that caused them to turn to the Lord? How would they have known that he was healed in the name of Jesus unless someone told them? And that had to be Aeneas. Eight years he's been bedridden. Now he's raised up. He is walking. He is able to move all in the name of Jesus Christ. The only way they've come to this knowledge, these towns, is if someone told them, and I can tell you, it's got to be Aeneas. He's not going to be silent. Remember back in school, for some of you, that's a long time ago, Tony. Um, love you, Tony. Remember back in school when you had show and tell? Do you remember show and tell? What? You would you'd bring some toy or object into class, and there you'd stand up and show the classmates. Um, um, Jackie and Ariel do this with the preschoolers here, and, and they have to teach them because the little kids, they'll get up there and they get toy. And so they're helping them to speak out and to talk about the object. What is it that's special? Where did you get it? Who bought it to you? Where or brought it to you? Who, where did you get it? And they, they teach them all these things. You stand up and you show and tell, right? Believers who have come into contact with Jesus, shouldn't we be doing the same thing as Aeneas did here? Showing how our lives are different and then telling them the reason it's different? My life is different because of Jesus. Now let me tell you about him. That's what happened with Aeneas there. Now let's go to verse 36 to the town of Joppa. There in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means 
Dorcas, stop right there, okay? I know there's more coming, but stop right there. One of the first things you notice about Dorcas here, what does it call her? A disciple. Dorcas is a disciple. Now, that doesn't seem odd to us, but the Greek word used here, which translates disciple, is the word mathetero. I practiced this, and I failed again. Um, Mathetria. It's the feminine form of mathetes, which simply means learner, pupil, student, or disciple. One who, if you remember back to what we were talking about, discipleship, a disciple is one who not only learns, but then teaches others what they have learned. This is the only time that the female form of this word is used in the entire Bible. This is the only person in Scripture who is female that is called disciple. This word is usually talked about the 12 disciples. And yet here, Luke, who is very purposeful in the words he uses, he is intent to make sure he uses the proper words. He uses disciple. This is a time where they would kind of push women over here and elevate men over here. And yet Luke, in this heroes that we just looked at, these unlikely heroes, he elevates Dorcas to Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip. She was, uh, she's the only one on this. And I, I just think right there, that needs to change how we look at Dorcas. She's a disciple, distinct if Aeneas is out there showing and telling why his life is different, what does that mean? Because he's not called a disciple. What does that mean about Dorcas? And then as I was looking at this, I was like, would Luke call me a disciple? Am I living up to the standards, the life, the faith of Dorcas? Uh, the Bible says she was full of good works. Look at verse 36. There's a woman, a Joppa discipline. A disciple named Tabitha, which translates Dorcas, she was full of good works and acts of charity. She is concerned for the needs of the poor. She ministered primarily to widows here. Widows in that day were incredibly vulnerable. There was no umbrellas of government assistance available to those uh, who were without families or resources. There were no coupon books or food stamps. There were no programs of that sort. These ladies were left alone with no resources at all. And the language here in this passage seems to indicate that Dorcas was also a widow. That, that's the way the words are. But she had some elevated financial resources to assist others. She was full of good works and charity. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Now, we have to understand, this is a different time period. In the Bible times, when someone died, they didn't have a viewing. They generally didn't do that because they didn't have embalming stuff. So they would want to get that person buried as quick as possible. They don't want that. And then they'd have a, a wake, a time where people would just come together, but the deceased body was not there. But it says here, she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in the upper room. That, there is something key here. 
I think these people were holding out for something. They were focused on something other than the here and now. They'd heard something, and I think verse 38 tells us why. Since Lydda and Joppa was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Why were they urging Peter to come to Dorcas, who has already died? This should tell you about the faith that is in these people that were under Dorcas. Why? Unless they were hopeful for something more. Look in verse 39. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he, they took him to the upper room. All the, win, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter didn't hesitate. The Greek here means that when they said it, he immediately got up. He got up without delay. He went there. He knew God was up to something by just how it's happened, so he answered. And when he arrived on the scene, I think he's moved by what he saw. This is kind of what I want to say is a funeral fashion show. Okay, so all these ladies are up there weeping and they're grieving over this beloved sister, and yet they're honoring her. They're bringing these tunics, these blankets, these clothing, whatever it is, and they're showing, look what she made. Look at the detail. Look at how she made this. Look at the glories and the beauty. And she gave it to us. She's full of good works and charity. So she must have been giving these things. It says, um, they were showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while was with them. I don't think they went into her closet. They went into their own and brought what she gave them. And Peter saw that. And Peter sees the love that was coming from Dorcas to these people. How Dorcas supported and helped each one of them. I think Peter is moved not only by what he sees, but by what he remembers from a previous scene in his life. Peter was there when Jesus brought a little girl, Jairus' daughter, back to life. And following the example of Christ, he approaches the situation the exact same way. Acts 9, verse 40. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, we need to hear something. This is exactly the same process Jesus followed with Jairus' daughter. He gets there, he sends the people out of the room, and he says, little girl, get up. It's interesting in Aramaic that there's only one variation in this. Look at what it says, Mark 5. Uh, and they laughed at him because Jesus said she's only sleeping. But he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus, to this little girl, said, Talitha kumi. That, that's what Jesus said. And Peter says, Tabitha kumi. The L and the B are the only thing different. Everything else is exactly stated the same, enacted the same. And I think what we can get here is, Peter's one of those heroes of the Bible, right? We should look and emulate him at times, but no matter who we are, we should do what Peter did here. And that is always follow Jesus' example. Don't follow Donnie's. Don't follow Nick's. Follow Jesus'. And even in this instance with this wonderful woman, 
Peter goes back to what he learned about Jesus. When we are struggling in daily lives, when we are coming into situations, do we go back to what Jesus has taught us, or do we come up and say, no, I've got this one. I can handle this. I can do this under my own knowledge and experience now. Because Peter didn't. He went back to exactly how Jesus did it. I kind of wonder what Dorcas thought when she opened her eyes and saw Peter. I mean, did she go, who is this guy? Who's this weird guy? He's in my room. Why am I here? She got to her feet, and she went out to see her friends. Verse 31, he gave her, and he gave her his hand, raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. Can you imagine the radical mood swing in this room, in that crowd? She was dead. They'd watched her. They'd known. She didn't just faint. She was gone. And now she's walking out of the room greeting them. It was an amazing event that changed that coastal town for a very long time. So what do we learn from this account? Who is the real hero of this story? It's not Peter. And it's not Dorcas. As much as I like both of them, the real hero of the story is God. And what I want us to consider through this whole thing is how God's character and his nature are in full display in Dorcas and Peter. Because the way Luke writes it, they are kind of equal in this sense. There's a few things that this story tells us. First, the heart of God is people. Peter went out and he saw Aeneas. And his heart went to him. He felt compelled, and he helped raise him. And the whole town saw that this man was raised and changed because of Jesus. The heart of God, the purpose of God, his mission is people. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.16, he came to save people because of his great love for us. Dorcas demonstrated that purpose. She was full of good works and charity. She showed the love that she knew from God and she shared that with others. Says she was full of good works and acts of charity. The word full here doesn't just mean stuffed. Okay, a lot of us get full at Thanksgiving. This this is not that word. It means overflowing, spilling out. She was so full of good works and charity that she couldn't help it but share and give that out to everyone else. Dorcas was about loving her neighbors. That's really what this is. This is nothing less than the fulfillment of the title she's given by Luke, a disciple. She learned about God, and then she went and shared and taught others about that and how she lived, and how she acted, and how she taught and talked to them. Let's say, Dorcas was obviously a learner and pupil of Jesus because she's doing exactly what Jesus did. He was full of good works. He was full of charity. And Dorcas is emulating him. Even in his final moments on the cross, Jesus did something that I don't think I could have done. He took care of his mother. In the midst of trying to breathe, in the midst of all that pain and sorrow, he made sure his earthly mother was taken care of. And this got me thinking, and I asked myself this question, how did Dorcas become someone who lived out the Christ-like life so purposefully? 
And here's the answer I came up with. She was devoted to the words of Jesus. That's the only thing I could come up with. Dorcas wanted to be like Jesus. And because she knew him, because she had that radical transformation in her life, she wanted to share that with anybody and everybody. She wanted to be like Jack, uh, like Jesus. She understood the heart of Christ. And remember, a disciple is one who not only learns, but then takes that and teaches it, shares it with others. Her attention and devotion to the words of Christ transformed her into becoming more and more like Jesus, that she was equated to one of the 12 disciples. I think that's somebody we should look up to then. We should learn from. Jesus promised that a devotion to his words would produce a great result. John 6, 63. The spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus, remember last week, he's the only one who can save. We can do all we can, but we cannot bring salvation. She knew this, and that's why she spoke his words. Some 2,000 years later, we can get so sidetracked on different things. It's easy to get off base. It's easy to replace the, the best things with good things. It's easy to let fears distract us. Now, how do we get back to that divine center, that purposeful focus that God has called us to? There's only one way. And that's a focus on God's word. Some of you are great people. Outside of faith, you are great people. But if you do not have the word of God growing and living in you, that's all you're going to be on earth. It's only those who focus and have that word of God growing and living in them that they achieve more in heaven. It's because Dorcas was devoted to the words of God and Dorcas demonstrated the works of Jesus. So it's the word of God and the works of Jesus. And again, isn't that what disciples do? They focus on what they've been taught and then they teach others. She was full of good works and charity. In Acts 2.45, they sold their property and possessed and shared all the money with those in need. In Acts 4.32, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what they had, what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Verse 34 there. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them. The early disciples, the early believers, made sure they took care. They demonstrated the works of Christ. And Dorcas is following that. They did good works for each other and those around them. They were made disciples for a reason. And that is to live the life of love and sacrifice. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created, once we are recreated into God's image, we need to do good works. Not to gain salvation, but because we have it and because that's what Jesus did. Jesus already had salvation, so why did he do good works? To show the love of God, to show the purpose of God, is to reach people. That's the purpose of God, to show the love of God to all people, and he does it through his word and through our actions. There's nothing better than watching God work in and through your life. I'm going to tell you that right now. I've been able to see God work in and through my life so many times. I've been able to see my, 
people that I live with or people that I know and care about. I've seen God work in and through them. Do you think Peter regretted that 10-mile walk to Joppa? I don't think he did. Now, was he sitting there going, what's the temperature? Is it humid? You know, it's hot. This last week was hot. I didn't even want to water my gardens. But he didn't regret that. To see Dorcas come back to life, to see the look on the faces of the widows, to see the town come to know Jesus, all because of the word and the works of Jesus. And here's something I think so many times we forget, because this is 2,000 years ago, right? Well, look what it says in Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. How many times have you said, I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what I should do in him. I'm lost. Well, he's telling you, God is working in you. And you want to hear him? Go to his word. Listen to him. You want to know more about him? Start acting like Jesus did. Start doing the things he did. And you're going to see your desires, your thinking, your changing, your feelings all move to model Jesus. This isn't the first time Peter experienced the power of God work in and through his life. Peter watched God work through him at Pentecost through the powerful preaching. He watched God at that work in and through him at that gate called Beautiful when the lame guy became healed and went jumping around. Peter watched God work through when he was thrown into prison for proclaiming the good news. And here he watched God work when Dorcas was raised from the dead. Here's the thing. Because he knew it, he saw it, he kept living based on that truth. I want to ask a very bold and blunt question. I don't want you to raise your hands. I want you to answer this in your head, though. How many of you have truly seen God work in you? Once you have seen that, why do we hold that in the past? Instead of daily saying, because you did this to me, God, I will do this for you. Because you saved me. Because you redeemed me back then. Because you did this, you you rescued me from this. I will continue to do this every day because of you reminding ourselves of that. We tend to hear these things of how people come to Christ. We got to hear from the heart and house ladies and some of their tremendous stories and generally we tend to think that only those sensational type of miracles and transition stories are God's power at work I didn't have some sensational story I wasn't redeemed after years and years of drug use or or thieving where I I was just a normal church boy so I, I, poss- I couldn't possibly have the same power of God working through me as those heart and house ladies. I just can't. That's generally what we think. Dorcas experienced God's powerful work in and through her life because she focused on God's word. And she acted according to it. And look at the result. People were waiting to show others how great she was to them. Not because of some great transformational story, but because she lived the words of Christ. She acted the words of Christ. Look again, verse 42. Became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The town of Joppa came to Christ. They did not come to Dorcas. They didn't come to Peter. 
It says, many believed in the Lord. That little church in Joppa, they saw God at work in Dorcas again. They celebrated what God had done. And they came to him. We just had some really fun, good, uplifting worship songs. And if you came here for the feeling of songs, you've missed the whole point. It had nothing to do with the bass, the drums, or the singer. It had nothing. Yes, I know. Brady's over there like, wait a minute. We don't need them to worship, do we? We need Jesus. That's why we worship. These are just instruments, tools to enable us to get a little louder and stay on tempo. We don't need them. We like them. Dorcas was the instrument to help focus people to worship Christ. And I think that's what you and I need to be. We need to realize that we need to be like Dorcas. We need to be like the bass, the bass guitar or the drums, that we are just here to help point people to Jesus. It's not about how good I am or you are. It's about how good God is, and I can just point you to him through his words and through his actions. So that leads us, while I was doing this, so what? What does this account of Dorcas and Peter do for us today? How do I live these truths? At some point, Dorcas heard about Christ. some point, she had to hear about Jesus and give her life to him so she could experience that salvation. She could have said, okay, that's good, that's nice, I'm glad I know the Lord, now I'm ready to just be comfortable and, and kind of back up. I've got a good thing going and... and I've got enough to make my way in life. I'm just going to come to church every Sunday and call it good. She could have kept it to herself, but she didn't. And you, we can tell this by so many people coming and mourning her. Because of the love of Christ in her life, she felt compelled to do the same thing to those around her. The love of Christ compelled Dorcas. That's what it was. Because she knew the love of Christ, she became a disciple. Because she knew the love of Christ, she was full of good works and charity. Because she knew the love of Christ, because it compelled her, she lived her life a certain way. Let me tell you the easiest way to live a dead life. Live for yourself. If you want to have a dead, meaningless life, live only for yourself. You will live a purposeless life purposeless, directionless, and gloryless life. Paul said, Jesus died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who has died for us. When we've been captured by the love of Christ, set free by the sins, when we are controlled by the love of Jesus, he gives us the privilege of being his disciples and his ministers of reconciliation to help point other people to Jesus. So this whole thing with Peter, why did he get up and go? Why did he go to Aeneas? Why did Dorcas do the things she did? Because the love of God compels them. So I have a question for all of us here, us. What compels you? What compels you? For Dorcas, her relationship with Christ compelled her. Her faith in Jesus compelled her. Her actions towards those around her proved it. 
Her faith in Jesus compelled her. Her love of Jesus compelled her. What compels us? Is it tradition? Do we go to church? Do we act like Christians because of tradition? Because if that's true, that is not of God. That is of men. Is it status? Is it fame? Recognition? Is it I just want to have a nice, easy life? What compels us? As a church, what compels us? It should be the love of Christ that we knew we were going to hell. And he saved us. And saved us so much that I don't want anybody else to go. And there are people in this room who are still choosing to live in sin. They know Jesus. They've heard about him, but they still choose to cling on to sin. What is compelling us? For some in here, we try to live and we try to act it, and yet we still stubbornly, I'm talking about myself here, stubbornly try to do it on our own. What is compelling us? Peter knew it is God. Dorcas knew it was all about God. And it is time for all of us to say it is God. God compels me. God compels me because of the cross. God compels me because of the empty tomb. God compels me because of the home I have in heaven. God compels me because of the the gift he's given me and my wife and my children. God compels me because of this great church I'm at. God compels me because this is not my home, and yet he still works in and through me. God compels me. And is he compelling you? Because he can't. Imagine your life being like darkness. People surrounding saying, our life will not be the same without her or him. Look at what she did. Look what he did in the name of the Lord. Look at how our church is going to struggle because of this person not here. Shouldn't that be all of us? Depends on what compels you. We're going to go to a time of worship, and I want to challenge you. Don't sing it. Don't mouth it. Let the love of Christ compel you to proclaim who he is in you. Let the love of Christ compel you to raise the rafters and tell the the heavens that it is our God who saves. Don't sing it. Let his faith, let his love compel you. Let's stand.